the meantime, why don't you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 15 in a series called Rise Up. Rise Up. And we're looking at verses 29 through 34. So turn your Bibles there. And I want you to see what we're teaching. I want you to see that it's from the Word of God. And we're so blessed in this country to have our own copies of God's actual writing. God's actual will. 1 Corinthians 15. 29 through 34. Let's read it. Follow along with me as I read. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are we baptized for them? Why then are they baptized for them? Sorry about that. Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord... I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some... Have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Wow. Powerful passage. A lot of good application in it. What's the main idea of what we just read? What's the main idea? Let me help you out with that. It's this. Our beliefs about the future impacts our behavior in the present. That's the main idea of this paragraph of this passage. That's the point Paul is driving home. It's the point God wants us to get. Our beliefs about the age to come should impact our behavior in this present age. And we said there's three ways that that plays out. Specifically, here's what it means. What you believe about your future bodily resurrection impacts how you live right now in the present. Circle that word, what. What you believe about your future bodily resurrection impacts, circle how, how you live right now. That's the specific big idea of this passage. Personally, what's that mean for you and I? It means this. How I live in the present reveals what I really believe about the future. How I live in the present really reveals what I believe about the future. Practically, what's that mean? People see what you believe about life after death by how you live in the present. Alright, people can, the unsaved, other believers should be able to look at your life. In fact, they do look at your life. We look at one another's lives and we can discern what they really believe. Now, here's the point of that. How you live right now is revealing what you truly live about the future. See, we may say we believe one thing. We may think we believe one thing about the future, but the reality of what we believe is revealed in how we live. Is there a disconnect about what we believe about our future resurrection and how we treat our bodies in the present? In fact, we're going to see today how we treat our dead in the present and how we treat our living bodies in the present. So here's what Paul does in this passage. He gives us four ways our future rising impacts our present living. And so we're going to look at all four ways. 
And another way of looking at it is, these four things will help you measure. You can measure. How does my belief about future bodily resurrection of believers, and I hope by this time in this series that you all believe that, now I'm going to measure how my belief in that is really playing out in how I live. So let's take a look at it. The first thing that he, he uh, addresses in verse 29 is this. What we believe about our future bodily resurrection impacts what we seek for the dead in the present. It impacts what we seek for the dead in the present. That's what verse 29 is all about. Now, last week we saw, and we just addressed this verse last week, saw it's one of the hardest verses, if not, I think, the hardest verse at least in the New Testament, to understand. Over 200 different interpretations. And at the end of the day, you could study all those, and you could do all sorts of intense study, which I've done for a couple weeks now. And I thought about it some more this week after teaching it, and I'm like, I'm still not sure which one of these. We don't know what being baptized for the dead really means. We don't know who was doing the baptizing. Was it unbelievers? Was it believers? Were it Corinthian believers? Who was being baptized? We don't know why they were being baptized for the dead. We don't know whether it benefited the one living that was being baptized or did it benefit the dead person who was being baptized in place of. The bottom line is this. We just don't know for sure. We just don't know for sure what this verse means. But we do know the point that Paul was trying to make. And here's what it is. What we believe about our future bodily resurrection impacts what we seek for the dead in the present. And I'm going to play, I want you to see what that means. Look at the last part of verse 29 again. Here's his point. We may not know what it all means, but here's his point. Last part of verse 29. If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? And here's the point. The symbolism of baptism is what? You hear it every time we baptize. Buried in the likeness of His death. But what do we say then? Raised in the likeness of His resurrection. Now, one of the funniest baptisms that I remember at our church was when Bruce was just first learning to baptize. And he uh, baptized, I don't know if it was a boy or an adult, I think it was a boy. It was an adult, it was an adult, and so he's buried in the likeness, see, he remembers. Buried, he doesn't even know what I'm going to say, but he knows. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection, and when he came back up, his head wasn't all wet. And so, you got to do it again, because, I mean, it's not fully buried, so down the man went again. Well, here's the big thing about baptism. You know, because there's some groups, brethren, uh, grace brethren groups, baptized three times forward. Uh, once for the Father, once for the Son, once for the Spirit. Here's the bottom line. What's mo more important than how many times you go down is that you ever come up. Right? That's the important thing about baptism is the guy brings you back up. Right? So, sometimes we think raised in the likeness of his death and we, we just think, oh, that means I'm saved. No, we're testifying that just like Christ died... We have died and will one day die, but just like Christ, we're going to rise again. And so what Paul's saying is, look, if you're going to do this on behalf of the dead, why symbolize, why do this symbol for someone who's dead and is never going to rise? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. What you believe about the future should impact. What he was saying was, if you don't think people are going to, if dead believers aren't going to rise, 
then we can get rid of baptism. Okay? If dead believers are not going to rise, then quit doing water baptism. But because we do believe they're going to rise in the future, that's why water baptism is such an important ordinance and such an important symbol for the church. Now, what about us? You know, that's all good, and we can get lost in some of the doctrine here. What, what Does what we believe about our future bodily resurrection impact what we seek for the dead? So I just I, I brainstormed here. You might come up with better things or different things. But what are some things we should not seek for the dead since we believe in the bodily resurrection of believers? Have you ever thought about that? In fact, I would venture to say that some of us here believe in the bodily resurrection of believers, and yet we probably don't practice that and seek some things for the dead that we shouldn't. And so today's an opportunity to change that. Well, here's some things. And by the way, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. I know people mean well. But as believers who believe in the bodily resurrection, these are some things we should not be doing. We should not say things like, there's another angel in heaven. When a believer dies. In fact, we shouldn't say that when anyone dies. People, listen, for a human being to become an angel is a step down. Alright? No one becomes angels. God doesn't need more angels. If He did, He'd create them. Okay? He wouldn't kill people to bring them up to Him. Okay? Uh, so, because we believe we're going to be resurrected as human beings, we shouldn't say this. And again, I understand the sentimentality. But you know what's more important than emotion and sentimentality? Doctrine. Talking and relating and even grieving and mourning as those who believe and practice what we believe. Amen? So that's one thing we shouldn't do as believers. We should not assume or claim someone is in heaven just because we wish them there. That's inconsistent with what we believe about the future. We believe that everybody's destiny is determined when? Before they die. In the present. Before they die. And if people die without Christ, then we should be consistent with our beliefs about the future. And, and you know, I love my mom and dad. I'm, I'm confident of my mom's testimony. I'm confident in my mom's changed life. I'm not confident in my dad. And as much as I love my dad, and as much as that pull, and that pull is tremendous. It's like a gravitational pull when your parent or a loved one or your child dies. But listen, people are not in heaven because we want them to be there. It, they're not, we can't wish people into heaven. What we believe about the future, that destinies are determined before they die and when they die. Now, God is gracious, but listen, God is not going to save people when they didn't receive Him before they die. Why? Because He's gracious, but He's true to His Word. Amen? And we should be true to it, too. Another thing that we should not do is we should not think of people finally being set free from the prison of their bodies. Okay? So we shouldn't think, oh, he's, he's finally free. Now, granted, I understand people with cancer, ravenous suffering, they're, they're free from the physical suffering, but they're not set free to never have a body again. They're going to have a resurrection body. So rather than just saying, hey, they're set free, we need to be saying, ah, praise God that they're set free from this cancerous body. It's same body's going to be raised again, glorified, resurrected, never to be sick, never to die, never to suffer anymore. You see the difference? 
One pulls the future into the present. Worse yet, we should never think of people dying and just ceasing to exist. That's totally inconsistent with what we believe about bodily resurrection. By the way, bodily resurrection of both believers and unbelievers. Unbelievers to judgment, believers to salvation. But no one ceases to exist. No one is annihilated. Another thing we should not do in light of our belief of a bodily future resurrection is we should not necessarily think of dead believers as eating or doing their favorite th- favorite things in heaven. Okay, sometimes like, well, you know, Uncle Joe, he's up there and he's playing cards or he's up there and he's eating this or, he, or he's up there and he's doing that, all his favorite things. Two things with that. One, they're not doing that now. The reason they're not doing that now is their body's in the ground and their spirit is with Jesus if they're a believer. Does that mean? So, now you say, well, what are they doing then? I don't know. But I know they're loving it and it's all centered on Jesus. And it's in heaven. But they're not playing golf. They're not riding their Harley. They're not going to the game. They're not doing all those things yet. The second thing we know is one day they will be doing those things in the kingdom, the the thousand-year kingdom, and in the new creation. You say, really? We'll be riding Harleys and going to ball games? Well, we don't know, but it's going to be very physical and it's going to be involved eating, and it's going to involve laughing and, and bodily exercising, and, and it, it's, just, it's, just, it's going to be very physical, very real, and those pleasures that we had here are going to be glorified and even better in the future. So it's not bad to say it, it's just that's not what they're doing now because they are separate. They are longing for the resurrection is what they're doing now. They can't wait. Lord, can we Can we be... And they're longing for the judgment on unbelievers. Read the book of Revelation. Those who had been martyred are, are kept protected under the throne of God. And what that, that is a symbol for being protected by God's sovereignty, even though on earth they were beheaded maybe by ISIS. But now they're in heaven and they're pleading for two things. God, get down there and judge those unbelievers. And God doesn't say, stop that. I'm loving. No, God says, just wait. You just wait. Because it's coming. And your desire is right and righteous. They're in heaven, by the way. So we know it's not unrighteous. Second thing they're going to want is they want their... Resurrection body. And you know what he says in Revelation? He gives them a white robe. He tells them to wait and gives them a white robe. Now, I, we can't, I can't go too far afield here. But, you know, I think that might represent maybe an intermediate temporary body, just a clothing to say, look, it's coming. It's coming. The resurrection is coming and my wrath is going to fall on the unbelieving. Um, Another thing, and, 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 and by the way, I know we're going to be eating in our resurrection bodies because after we're resurrected and after we're raptured and our bodies are glorified, we celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. Marriage supper of the Lamb. You say, is that really eating or is that symbolizing something that's non-eating? No, it's really eating because Jesus said at the Last Supper, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with new with you in the kingdom. And we know he had a body that could eat because when he came, he said, I'm not a ghost. Give me some fish. And he ate. And he swallowed it. Another thing we should not be doing is saying prayers for the dead. Many who have a wrong belief about the future say prayers for the dead. 
And, uh, you know, again, I'm not trying to be harsh and I'm not trying to be, you know, oh, you know, just doctrinal about it. Because believe me, with uh, my parents' death, you, you just there's just this natural tendency. And I can't imagine a child or a spouse. There's a natural tendency to want to talk to them and want to, in a sense, pray for them. Because you still love them, right? You've been praying for them for all their lives. Now they're gone. But here's the bottom line. When I have that tendency, I just stop myself and say, that's not, Lord, I don't need to talk to them, uh, pray about them. Wherever they are, heaven or hell, their destiny is set, and I can trust you with where they're at. And really what I need to do is talk to you about my grieving process. I need to talk to you about people that are still alive that need Jesus. I need to talk to you and get your perspective on heaven and eternity and not other people's opinions. And certainly we should not get baptized for the dead. Their eternal destinies are set. You say, yeah, but Paul said that. No, we don't know what Paul said. What he said was, what you believe and seek for the dead should be consistent with what you believe and is clearly taught about a future resurrection. Well, what are some things we should seek for the dead? Okay, those are all the negatives. That's what we shouldn't... What are, as a believer in the future bodily resurrection, what should I seek? So, almost everyone here has a loved one, probably, that is a believer that has died and is in heaven. So, what should we seek for them that's consistent with what we believe? Well, number one, we should talk about them as being absent from the body, but present with the Lord. Amen? They're absent from the body, present with the Lord. We can say that, and we should say it. In fact, Paul says, comfort one another with these truths. Uh, We should talk about them as being with Jesus wherever He is. Right now, where is Jesus? At the right hand of the Father. Where is He physically in His resurrected body? The right hand of the Father. Where are all departed believers? With Jesus around the throne, and if you don't see, if you don't haven't read Revelation chapter four, it's all about being around the throne. Everything in heaven is around the throne. Uh, where is Jesus going to be after he uh, after the rapture? He's going to come down and take us back to heaven. And where is every departed believer going to be? They're going to be resurrected and with Him in heaven. When Jesus comes back and sets up His millennial kingdom for a thousand years, where will all believers be? Where He is, where is He going to be? On the earth, we're going to be with Him. For the new creation, where is Jesus going to be? It says in Revelation 21 and 22 that God the Father and Jesus Christ His Son are going to reign forever on the new earth. Where are believers going to be? Wherever He is. That's how we need to talk. That's how we need to think. Another way that we should uh, uh, seek for the dead is we should grieve for our loss and their death, not as unbelievers. There's a time and place for grieving. There's a time and place for hope in that grieving. We should not grieve like unbelievers. Why? Because we have this resurrection hope. Another way we, uh, way we should talk about the departed dead believer is we should talk about them as being asleep in Christ. Why? Because that's how Paul consistently talks about believers. Asleep, not because their soul is asleep, but because their body, when they die, their body is just laid there and it looks like they're asleep and they're going to raise up someday. They're going to wake up someday. And that's how we should talk about it. Uh, We should look forward to being reunited with them and with the Lord at the rapture. 
We should seek for the dead and speak of the dead in a way that's consistent with what the Bible teaches about our future resurrection bodies. Does that, does that connect with you? All I'm trying to say is, obviously, first of all, if I was ministering to someone who, who, whose loved one had died, I'm not going to give them this lesson. Okay, you know, sometimes you've got to clarify that for people. Okay, I'm talking to a class. No one recently has died that I know of. And we're learning this so that we can apply it in the future. Amen? And make some changes, maybe how we think of loved ones in the past. So this is not how I would talk to someone who's just had a grieving. But that's the beauty of, of being here in the New Life class. That's the beauty of going through the Bible in depth in a chapter like this. Is that we can start renewing our mind. That looks like we're going crazy. That's not good. We can start renewing our mind with the Word of God and prepare ourselves when a loved one does die that we can talk in a way that's consistent with what we believe in the future. Well, what we believe about the future should not only impact what we seek for the dead, but it should also impact how we serve God in the present. And that's the second point that Paul makes in this passage. What we believe about our future rising should impact how we serve God in the present. So he moves quickly from verse 29 that we're clueless about into verses 30 through 32, which we're equally clueless about, not because we don't know what it means. We're clueless because most of us don't live this way. Let's take a look at it. Look at verses 30 through 32. Paul's moving from the symbolism of baptism into his service for the Lord. Notice what he says. Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by my boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's saying, my future belief about bodily resurrection impacts how I serve God in the present. Now, look at he asks a question in verse 30. He says, why are we also in danger every hour? He's referring to himself and the rest of the apostles who are on mission for God. And here's what he says. What does Paul mean by being in danger every hour? Well, I want to show you from Scripture, it means this. In danger here means risking one's life to the point of death. Risking one's life to the point of death. There's danger and then there's deadly danger. And he's talking about deadly danger. In fact, it's in the present tense. He says, we are in continual deadly danger every hour, all the time. This word for danger can mean losing one's life, losing one's freedom by imprisonment. It can mean losing one's livelihood. It means risking it all. Now, we get an idea of what he means by turning our Bibles to Romans 8. Turn your Bibles to Romans 8. Because in Romans 8, 35 through 39, in the first verse, Paul uses this word danger. And I, I just want, to, I want you to get a context a little bit of what this word means. Romans 8, 35 through 39. You're going to be fami- most of you are going to be familiar with these passages. Notice what it says. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril? And that's our word for danger. 
And then the only thing worse than deadly danger is death. So his next thing is sword. That means to be executed, to be killed. So out of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, and nakedness, the only thing worse than death, the only thing is one step less than death is danger, deadly danger. Then he goes on, just as written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But here's the hope. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why was Paul willing to face danger every hour on behalf of Christ. He had this kind of confidence in God's love for him. But such danger was not... You know, we kind of read Romans 8, at least I do, and it's a little abstract, right? And I get caught up. It's not this. It's not this. You know, all these things can't touch me. It's abstract. God loves me. And we can just lavish or languish in God's love. But these things aren't abstract for Paul. Turn your Bibles to first, uh, 2 Corinthians 11. In 2 Corinthians 11, he's going to use this word danger eight times in one verse. And we're going to see that for Paul... Danger wasn't an abstract thing. It was a daily reality. Turn your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians 11. I think it's interesting. Once again to the Corinthians, he's talking about these dangers. Now look at 2 Corinthians 11, and let's pick it up in uh, verse 23. Paul's saying, because again, the Corinthians are always exalting these other people that are more spiritual than Paul because they, they're, they're like reigning in the kingdom already and they don't, get, they don't get imprisoned like Paul and they don't suffer like Paul. And here's what he says, verse 23, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I'm insane. He's like, man, I, I hate to go here, but your, your false thinking is making me go here. I'm more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. How would you like to be beaten so many times for Christ you can't even remember how many times it was? Wow. Sort of hard to relate to. Often in danger of death. There's our word. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Most men died from one time of that. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And if you look in Acts, he was stoned and left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. Now, here he comes, verse 26. He's going to use this word danger eight times. I've been on, freak, uh, I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers. I almost drowned. Dangers from robbers. They almost killed me. Dangers from my countrymen countrymen, the Jews almost killed me. Dangers from the Gentiles, the Romans have almost killed me. Dangers in the city, urban violence that almost killed me. Dangers in the wilderness, starvation and hunger almost killed me. Dangers on the sea, remember I said I was shipwrecked how many times? Three. Dangers among false brethren, false teachers in the church had nearly betrayed him to the point of death. Wow. 
Do you see that? I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Wow. Those are the dangers that Paul is talking about. So here's the question that you have in your notes. Why does Paul risk his life in serving God and others? That's what he's saying to them. He's saying he's, he's forcing them to struggle with this issue. Why does Paul risk his life in serving God and others? And I would give you two reasons for that, two answers to that question. And they are the same reasons why you ought to and I should risk our lives in serving God. First is death meant being present with the Lord. Death meant being present in the Lord. Hey, I'll risk it all because the worst thing you can do to me is kill me, and that's the best thing you can do to me. I'll just be with Jesus. It's kind of hard to defeat someone who, when the worst thing you do to them is kill them, is the best thing that they could ever long for. Secondly, death would be one day, death would one day be defeated. Death would one day be defeated at the resurrection. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look. You don't believe in a resurrection, but you don't get it. If there's no resurrection, I wouldn't live. I wouldn't risk my life. You think I'm going to get beat numerous times? I'm going to, I'm going to be stoned and left for dead if I don't think that when I die, someday I'm going to resurrect and be rewarded. But he goes on in verse 31. Look back at 1 Corinthians 15. He not only risks his life, but he sacrifices his life. Why does Paul sacrifice his life in serving God and others? He says, I die daily. Does Paul die daily and resurrect on a daily basis? No. So he's saying figuratively. He's saying, I die to self daily. And I surrender myself and say, Lord, I may die today, but that's okay. My life is yours. So... He's risking his life, really, literally, and he's sacrificing his life daily. So, why does he do that? Well, you have the answers there in your notes. One, Paul dies daily in serving the Lord to evangelize, disciple, and go on mission. He says to him in verse 31, I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus, I die daily. What he's saying is, look, if I didn't die to myself... You guys wouldn't be believers. If I didn't die daily, your church wouldn't exist. Now, here's, the, here's a quick application. Who can you say that to? Who can you say that because I sacrifice my life in light of what I believe about the future, I risk you offending you, I risk being rejected by you, and I have shared the gospel with you, and you received it by God's grace, and now I can boast in the Lord that He has saved you because I died daily. Are you getting the idea? See, I, you know, in our witness, I, I, and I'm just as guilty and wrong thinking as you, I have to renew my mind. We get all messed up in our witnessing. We get so focused on the person, and we get so focused on ourselves. What are they going to say about me? What are they going to think about me? What if, what if this? What if that? What, first of all, 90% of our fears don't even happen. Would you agree? And then 10% that do happen, it's not even close to getting beaten and stoned. And here's the bottom line. You know what? You can hate me. 
You can reject me. We can, I, we cannot, we can, I can, I will risk losing our friendship because I've already died. And I'm living for Him. And I've got a future where I'm going to be resurrected and rewarded. And what I have to share with you is far more important than what you think of me. Out of love, I want to share this with you. What you do with it, that's your concern. How that impacts me, God will take care of me. I've died. I died today. And I'll die tomorrow. And I'll die the next day. And one day, I will die. And then I'm going to rise again. And I'm going to be rewarded for every time I witnessed. And I'm going to be rewarded for every time I served. And I'm going to be rewarded for every sacrifice I made. And any sacrifice I made, I'm going to receive back a hundred times more in the kingdom to come. I'm all out for him. That's what Paul's saying. And Paul's saying, take away the resurrection and you've taken away all that motivation for living for the Lord. And here's what I think. I think two things. I think one of the reasons we lack more motivation to risk our lives and to sacrifice like Paul's talking about is we don't concentrate enough on what we really believe about the future. We don't really think there's a kingdom that's coming. We don't really think there's a judgment seat where I'm going to have to give an account. We don't really think God's going to reward us a hundred times more than anything I give up. What is 10% of the income off the top when He's going to give us a thousand times more? Right? What's coming here a half hour early to greet people? To put coffee on. What is a sacrifice of a half hour when He's going to have all eternity to praise us and reward us for what we have done for Him? Amen? You say, God praises us? Yeah, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. Isn't that good? Listen, we just got to think, you know, when you're down and you're discouraged and I'm right there with you, you need to be thinking, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? It's, it's going to be worth it. It's not worth it now. You think Paul's getting stoned and going, man, this is great. Can't wait for the next one. Wow, shipwreck number one. I hope there's three. Woo, there's three. Bring more. He's just like you. He's like, God, I, I, I want out of here. He said that. He said, I want to go home. I want to be with you. But there's something far better. And it's living for, for others right here on this earth. Isn't that good? I think it's good. Here's his illustration. He's dying to self and risking his life to plant the church at Corinth. But another reason, he says, Paul dies daily in serving the Lord to be rewarded after his resurrection from the dead. Isn't it interesting that the judgment seat of Christ, that, that reward for believers in the kingdom to come, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because these guys have got it wrong. They think it's all now. Boy, I went to serve the Lord, and pastor didn't say thank you. You know, I've been serving here for, for decades, and I hardly get any, you know, I haven't gotten a raise. Well, we'll raise, everybody gets a raise for serving the Lord today. Okay, you say, man, zero, double to zero is nothing. No, your payment comes when? At the judgment seat. At the judgment seat. Paul's life illustration, though, is dying to self and risking his life at Ephesus for future rewards. Look at verse 32. So he says, first, my, my first illustration is you guys yourselves. You wouldn't be here if I didn't risk everything in light of the resurrection. But then he says, 
He's writing from Ephesus, and he says this, If human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? Now, the question is, Was this a, did he really fight with animals in the gladiatorial games? Or, you know, in, in, out of uh, uh, being arrested? Well, first of all, this was a real threat. This really did happen. What he's talking about really did happen. And uh, if you got crossways with Rome, and if you've seen the movie Gladiator, a great, uh, if not totally accurate, at least uh, get the feeling of it, uh, you'd be thrown in with the believers. You can read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Real believers were thrown in and had to fight with animals. And as you know, it's not an even fight, right? So this really did happen. It was a real threat. But did Paul really do it? Probably not. This is a figure of speech. Why did Paul probably not fight with animals? A couple reasons. One, Roman citizens did not have to fight with animals. You know, if they got arrested, they would just execute you, behead you. They wouldn't throw you to the animals. That was for non-Romans. Paul was a Roman citizen. Secondly, if Paul fought really with animals, don't you think he would have listed it in 2 Corinthians 11? I mean, I, you know, hey, and remember that time when I had to strangle that lion in the, in the Colosseum? Yeah, you know, this was hard. Third, Paul would not have survived. Okay, you don't wrestle with the animals and then say, yeah, you know, unlike the gladiator, uh, it doesn't turn out that way. Okay, you lose. Because first of all, you didn't have armor and you didn't have a sword. Okay, so it's more watch the animal chase you around until you tripped and fell. Paul's point is this, why am I facing life-threatening persecution? What he's saying is sometimes ministry is like being thrown to the animals. Sometimes ministry is so brutal, so difficult, so antagonistic, persecution is so great, opposition is so strong that it feels like you're fighting wild animals and you are outnumbered, overpowered, and overwhelmed. And he said, why in the world would I stay in ministry if all there was to life, if there was no resurrection after life? And he says, if there's no resurrection, I should be saying what some of you in Corinth are saying. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We cease to exist. We're set free from our body prisons. Let's just party hardy. Let's get as uh, much drinking, as much eating, as much sex, as much bodily pleasures. Let's indulge ourselves because after we die, we don't have bodies and none of this matters anymore anyway. You see, that's what he says. And I think there's two reasons. Uh, Paul's point is simple. If the dead are not raised, let's eat, drink, tomorrow we die, and let's quit uh, fighting with difficult people. Let's quit getting stoned. Oh, sorry, both ways, I guess, uh, you know, physically and uh, 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 metaphorically. Two reasons why Paul uses this phrase. One, number one, is unbelief of unbelievers. Unbelief of unbelievers. This phrase, eat, and drink for tomorrow we die was a popular philosophy in Paul's day. And guess what? It's still one today, right? How many of you know people that live by this philosophy? They may not say it, but they live it. And every week, this is the same philosophy that says live for the weekend, right? Live for the weekend. Now, no life after death, no facing judgment, no resurrection where I have to stand before God. Man, eat and drink, tomorrow we die. But there's a second reason he says this. Unbelief of so-called believers. Unbelief of so-called believers. 
Do you realize that phrase is not just bad philosophy? It's in Scripture. He's quoting Isaiah. There's two times where it's mentioned in Isaiah. And here's what this prophet Isaiah was doing. He was coming to the people of God and he was saying, Look, you're living immorally and God's judgment is coming. And you know what they, you know what they said? Eh, eat and drink, tomorrow we die. That's why at the end of this passage, Paul says there's some of you that are ignorant of God. You just don't know God's character. Because when God says He's going to judge, we should repent. We should, we should change our life. We should, for, we should, as he says at the end of this passage, we should stop sinning. We should sober up. We need to stop being deceived. There's a judgment day coming. I'm going to be resurrected and I'm going to stand before God we shouldn't just say, eh, what's for dinner this afternoon? Wonder if the Royals are going to win. You see, Israel ignored God's judgment because they were ignorant of God's true character. So let me give you a couple applications. Are you risking your life in serving the Lord? Are you sacrificing your life to serve God and others? If you believe in a bodily resurrection, that's what you should be doing. That's what I should be doing. Who are you? What are you risking to serve, to witness to others? What are you risking to witness? Will you risk ridicule? Will you risk losing a friend to share the gospel with them? Will you risk losing your job, your reputation? You said, Chris, you're going too far. What, Paul? What did Paul endure? Paul was willing to lose it all. What are you willing to sacrifice to serve the Lord? Will you give Him the first 10% of your income? Will you give Him the tithe that is His? Will you come a half hour early to serve? Will you stay a half hour later to count money? Will you spend an evening or two discipling someone, leading a grow group, or preparing a lesson to teach? Will you give a Wednesday night to love kids in Awanas? Randy paid me to say that. But Paul's not done yet. How what we believe about the future should impact our present living. And having mentioned the false views, it leads him to verse 33. What we believe about future rising should impact who we separate from in the present. Who we separate from in the present. Look at what he says. He says, I know some of you are saying, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And I know some of you are listening to that. And I know some of you are being influenced by that. And here's my warning to you. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, I'm a child of the 80s. I read bad company in the Bible and I, I think of things. Okay, And it's, so it's not a rock group. Bad company is not a rock group. Uh, company there can mean communication or company. It doesn't matter. They come together. When you're with bad company, you hear bad communication. And you'll never hear bad communication unless you're in bad company. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, you're hanging with the wrong people. You're listening to the wrong people. You're being influenced to the wrong people. But Paul, they're believers. You're hanging with the wrong people. You're listening to the wrong people. Yeah, but they're members of our church. And Paul says, why are they still members? He's saying bad company corrupts good 
habits. This is not just a verse for youth camp. This is not just a verse for your teens. We love to quote these kind of verses to young people. We need to be looking in the mirror and saying, am I hanging and listening and influenced by the wrong people and hearing the wrong things that are leading me in the wrong ways? Now, he is not saying, I don't have time to develop this, but he's not saying don't hang out with lost people to reach them for Jesus. Otherwise, you'd have to quit your job and we'd never lead anybody to Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, he says, look, I'm not saying quit hanging the lost people. You'd have to leave the planet to do that. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 5. He's saying, no, I'm talking about so-called brothers, so-called sisters who share deny gospel essentials like the bodily resurrection or that homosexuality is a sin or that transgender is a sin. And when so-called believers say, God doesn't judge that. God loves that. You ought to love that. You shouldn't reject that. We should all welcome that kind of sin, not only into the lives of others, but into the lives of the church. He says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Are we loving? Yes. Do we relate for witnessing? Yes. But we don't hang with them in a way of saying, oh, hey, Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You just happen to believe something different than I do about when we die. Now, how do we get, uh, how do we get influenced by bad company? Well, first of all, if you've got people who profess to be Christians and they deny the gospel or they deny Christ, you need to, have, you need to quit fellowshipping with them as believers and start witnessing to them as lost people. Now, you don't need to go and say, hey, you're lost, but you should have that mindset. This person claims to be a believer, but they're denying the gospel. They're denying Christ. They're accepting as sin, or as, they're rejecting as sin what is sin. And I'm just gonna, I, we're just going to get along, and we're going to ignore those things. No, those things need to be confronted, and you need to understand, hey, we can't agree on this. Because the Bible teaches differently. What are some ways you can be exposed to bad communication? Podcasts, audiobooks, internet, Facebook. Entertainment is huge. The movies you watch, the music you listen to, the books you read. I know some people still read books. The books you read. And this whole uh, present thing with Bruce Jenner is a great example. I've read about four or five blogs. Almost all of them written by Christians. And they fall into two camps. This is not sin and everybody should be loving and never judge. This is sin, but we need to be loving and compassionate and sharing how it's sin and the hope of the gospel. They come in two groups. Both written by Christians. Bad company will corrupt good morals. True doctrine will transform lives. Amen? Well, here's the last. The last verse in our passage reveals one, and by the way, in the, uh, so we picked out one of these that was one of the most biblical and compassionate, and you have that in your bulletin today. Uh, so, what do we believe about our future bodily resurrection? It impacts how we stop sinning in the present. Paul has had enough in verse 34, and he says, stop sinning. Here's what he says, don't be deceived, Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some of you have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. In the last two verses, 
Paul gets after it and he gives three direct commands. The first is stop being deceived and deceiving yourselves. Your beliefs and those of others impacts your behavior. Stop thinking anything differently. What you believe should impact and how you behave. Well, let's go. Number two, stop becoming spiritually and literally, or start becoming spiritually and literally sober. Live like you really believe. Wake up, people. He's coming. The resurrection, the rapture. Live like it. Live like you really believe. And then third, stop behaving like those who don't know God. How you behave reflects what you really believe. How you behave reflects what you really believe. He's saying to them graciously. And here's what I would say. One of the blogs I read about Jenner was somebody who had literally been a youth pastor to the Kardashians. How would you like that? They had youth meetings at the Kardashian house. Uh, Chris uh, Kardashian had even asked him to start a church. And so this guy was the youth pastor of this church plant. And so he, he, uh, the blog was what uh, Caitlin taught me about Jesus. And so he interacted. But here's the, the end of the day was this. Rather than just accepting and loving Bruce slash Caitlin... We need to love and say, if you really know Jesus, then you need to reflect that in your behavior and repent of this sin and be the new creature that you claim to be in Christ. Your identity, Bruce, is not in your gender, ultimately. It's not in how you dress. It's not in surgery. Your new identity is a new creation in Christ. If that's what you claim... Let's live like it. And I'll love you, I'll help you, and we'll move towards that. But I can't accept what you're doing because what you're doing is sin. And I love you too much to not tell you that. Amen? Is this how we're living? I think this lesson has given us a lot to work on. A lot to go to the Lord about. Is how you're living, especially in serving the Lord... Is it reflecting what you really believe? Or do you need to make adjustments? Let's pray. Father, we come. And uh, it's difficult. Uh, Life is getting more difficult. The future holds persecution. The future holds greater opposition. And if we don't have our beliefs anchored in our future resurrection, we're going to retreat. We're going to seek comfort. We're going to compromise. And in the end, we're going to start sinning and living in a way that contradicts what we really believe. Father, your grace and forgiveness is abundant. Forgive us. Forgive me where my behavior doesn't match my beliefs. And Father, may I meditate, may we meditate more on our future bodily resurrection and begin to risk more and sacrifice more than we ever have in order to see people saved, to love those that are hurting and confused, and to show long-suffering with those that are hardened and rebelling. And may we follow your example. And when stoned like Stephen or crucified like you, may we say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Do not hold this sin against them. My hope is in you. My hope is in the future resurrection. God, help us not to be deceived. In Jesus' name, amen.